tune into this episode of Pacey Performance Bite Size. So this clip came from a roundtable that I did with Ian Jeffries, Sean Maishka, and Tom DeSantos. And we have a little chat around why change direction and agility have been clubbed together and what that means for how we view it, how we train it, and how we test it. But just before we do dive into this roundtable with these three guys, I want to say a big thanks to Rock Daisy for sponsoring this episode today. So if you're looking for a free solution to be able to collect, analyze, visualize, and present data to coaches, check out AMS Lite from Rock Daisy at rockdaisy.com. Interesting. I'm probably going to be like a politician, though, uh, Rob, because I'm not going to answer your questions straight away. I'm going to ramble and meander <laughs> around for a little bit, but I will come back to it a little bit later on. First of all, I want to give a little bit of context. So I, when I look at agility, change of direction, whatever we want to call it, I'm coming from the perspective of a coach. So ultimately, what I want to do is my role is to make players better. So I have to utilize concepts that help me transfer what I do on the training field onto the field of play. So ultimately, because I'm here to make players play the game better i've got to make sure that all the concepts that i use help me do that because to me whatever we call it movement is the integrator so i could have great tactical awareness i could have great technical skills if i can't move effectively i'm never going to optimally utilize those other capacities so if you look at great players they have their technical skills, they have their tactical skills, but invariably there is some element of good movement within them. And that's what I see my role as, is helping them move to exploit the other tactical and technical skills. So with that in mind, I then start to ask myself, how much do we actually know about movement within the game context? I think we know about the isolated elements that we would typically uh, associate with agility or change of direction. I'm not sure we know quite as much about how we utilize them in the game. And to me, I kind of got into this from a, a player's perspective and a coach's perspective. And the contradictions have always frustrated me and fascinated me. That's the players who on paper, in all of our tests, don't appear to be that good, but my God, they can play the game. And the other ones who you think, wow, they're gonna be, they, these, these, they've just got everything. And then you get them on the field of play and you think, hmm, that ain't quite working. And I think all too often we can push that aside. Yeah, yeah, but they got game sense. We'll, we'll, we'll explain it away. But I think sometimes, actually, when we dig in, they hold the key to effective movement. So one of the things that, that's happened, and a lot of things have positives and negatives associated them. I think now that we've started to define agility, we've defined change of direction, the first thing we've tried to do is measure it. But in doing that, we often lose the context of the movement. And once we lose the context, I think we start to miss out on things. So, so quite often we focus on the things that we do in relation to speed and agility. 
and change of direction. What I don't think we focus on enough is the things that we are missing. So whenever we define agility or we define change of direction, we frame it. And by, de by default, we miss things that I think are actually crucial to the way players play the game. So when we, when we try to measure agility, for example, we always measure by how fast a person moves. Yet when you watch a game, players will deliberately slow down. They'll change pace. But our understanding doesn't encapsulate that because we always presume that faster is better. Same with change of direction. Sometimes if I watch a great player change of direction, they will throw a feint first before they change direction, but that slows them down. So that's where I think, how much do we understand these concepts? So rather than confuse ourselves and narrow our perspective by using the terms agility and change of direction, I just use the term game speed which to me then makes me go to the game to have a look at what they do in the game and then extrapolate that out and leave that guide my development processes, not necessarily being constrained by the definitions. So is there a difference between them? Probably. I'm actually not that concerned with it because I want ultimately to understand game movement rather than are narrow terms. When we spoke on the podcast, Ian, we'd mentioned Paul Gascoigne, which is definitely a UK European reference. But I think it, I don't know whether it was the Gaza documentary that was coming out, but he was a perfect example. I'm guessing, not that he did any testing at that point, but if he did, horrific. I'm my guessing. But then get him on the pitch and just an absolute magician. Yeah. And would, yeah. And, and I think what it does, once you start to look at it from a game speed perspective, it opens up areas that these people can be good at. So we've, by the way we look at agility from a very physical aspect, you know, we look at force capacities, we look at movement control and so on. But I think we miss the perceptual elements of agility. We miss the... Uh, the cognitive elements. We miss the skill elements. And I think one of the mistakes we make with this is that we view it purely from a physical standpoint and we don't view it from a skill development standpoint. And, and I think it's where we can combine all of those that the true magic is going to happen. So Paul Gascon may not have had great physical capabilities, but he sure had pretty good cognitive and perceptual which can put him a step ahead of somebody with better physical capacities. And I think um, we can get easily constrained. And this is where our contradictions come from. Oh, they've got great physical capacities. I've done my job. Mm -hmm. Have we? If they're not transferring that to the game, have we actually done our job? And I, where I think we have a real role to play is we have our classic strength coaches we have us uh team coaches but we have this area in the middle that nobody really seems to exploit the movement elements 
of it. And I think sometimes we say, oh, they'll get that in their team practice. They don't always, that doesn't always happen. Or we'll work on this in the, in the weight room. Yes, it's part of it, and I'll never deny that, but it's not enough. And, and I think all too often we miss this key integrator here, and we, we, our, our players never exploit their full potential because of that. That's where a movement skill acquisition coach fits, isn't it, Sean? Well, notice I'm <laughs> unmuted. Uh, there. And, and uh, if I could have the little emoji in the bottom, I would have thrown up the little confetti uh, because so much of that, which what Ian was just saying was obviously music to my ears, obviously a conversation that you and I had a number of weeks ago, Rob, about existing in the middle. That to me is really truly bridging that gap. Much of that, which what Ian was talking about there is particularly about how game speed in this connotation or, or conceptualization of game speed starts to encompass the more holistic, the more an integrated movement problem solving process, how perceptions and cognitions and actions perpetually feed into one another with circular causality. Like there is this tight coupling between these respective processes. And when we begin to isolate them, when we begin to decontextualize them, we lose its function, we lose its purpose, its practicality. And we start to to maybe see it in, a, in its vacuum, but we know that movement behavior in sport doesn't exist in a vacuum, right? It exists in a context. And that's what Ian, I think, was so eloquently, eloquently speaking to there, that that context of the environment and the task and the problem and the organism or the player will coalesce to create this context that then chases or channels into the content that is the movement behavior that we see emerging. And obviously that context is often complex. It's dynamic, it's emergent. And these problems that are presented to the players are very alive. They have unpredictability and therefore the movement solution that emerges, that which what is most functional, that which what is most practical and relevant and useful must be behaviorally fit to that respective problem and its opportunities. And so, so much of that, which what Ian was talking about, uh, it certainly speaks to me in the way that I view movement behavior in sport as well, through this being a problem-solving activity where the movements themselves are the solutions that are unfolding, but that movement is more integrated and it's, it's more, um, it's underpinned by more than just motor actions, more than just motor system degrees of freedom, more than just motor abilities. It's about the perceptual and cognitive qualities equally as much because it's constantly and perpetually feeding into one another. So how one perceives is going to be determined based on how one is acting. And as one acts, one perceives new information, so on and so forth. Again, in this tightly coupled circular causality. The other thing that we have to remember with what Ian was discussing there is when context shapes content and content feeds back into it, there's this mutual reciprocal relationship between the problem and the solver. So the problem is constantly changing and so is the solution and no two problems are ever the same. So neither are any two solutions. So when we start to test it, when we start to chase it, whether it's in a technical model type of fashion or whether it's in an isolated decontextualized setting, we start to miss the context as Ian mentioned but we also start to miss the variability, the inherent variability of both the problem and the solution. And, and I think it's there, we have to start embracing that messiness a little bit more, Rob, just as we, you and I had talked about a few weeks ago. Go on, Tom. Yeah, I think it's, I suppose it comes to the issue of 
a lot of strength condition practitioners need to try and keep their job and justify kind of the tasks and practices that they do. So they like to deconstruct agility and break it down to the physical aspect and use essentially general tests to try and evaluate and show the dem and demonstrate the physical quality, i.e. change in direction. And I don't think that a lot of practitioners are very comfortable trying to coach the movement skills and a whole range of different movement skills that are available on the core or on the pitch in this case, and how we go about quantifying agility. I don't think we ever will. And it's like saying, how do we quantify or capture or state is someone a good footballer, for example, there's a whole range of different aspects. And when it comes down to agility, as Ian and Sean were both saying, there's a whole range of different movement solutions. And I think we would need a multitude of different tasks and everything's context specific. And if we take some of the 360 degree sports, we could potentially be examining a whole range of different angles, a whole range of different technical actions. So it does get very difficult. So I think a lot of people will focus on the mechanical and the action aspect and are quite uncomfortable trying to develop the perceptual and cognitive aspect. And I don't, I don't know the best way of examining those aspects. I think there could be a, a market and a potential for like maybe virtual reality and video based. I think there could be a big uh, market there potentially for examining those qualities. But I think a lot of people just go for the simple option of focus on more the pre-planned aspect because it's easier to measure. Is that something that you think could be improved in terms of education of undergraduates? And I'll get, I know me and Ian have spoken, well, Ian's spoken about this when we, we had a chat, but I'd like to get your opinion there, Tom. Yeah, so definitely, rightly or wrongly, most undergraduate programmes and even accreditation spend a lot of the proportion focus on the weight room. And I completely agree there needs to, there is a strength conditioning role strengths in the title however i think many of the lecturers and the students themselves have a very uncomfortable coaching field-based conditioning so i think that is one issue that we have and i think there needs to be a bigger drive on developing practitioner skills on not only being comfortable in the weight room but actually coaching in the field but i think that's where it comes down to maybe more motor control motor skill learning and skill acquisition and trying to emphasize a bit more of that into our syllabuses Thanks for tuning into this episode of Pacey Performance Bite Size. So if you want to watch the full episode, the full roundtable with Tom, Ian and Sean, head over to sportsmith.co forward slash live. And there's a list of live roundtables that we've done, including this one. And you can watch the video there. Big thanks for tuning in. And also big thank you to Rock Daisy for sponsoring this episode today. And I'll chat to you next time.